Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me, as usual, is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. Another Thursday, another Thursday afternoon news dump from the Supreme Court um, that's made us go back to the drawing board and re-record our intro to this episode. Hot off the press is the Supreme Court Marshal's report into the investigation of last term's leak of Samuel Alito's draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Yeah, what's the big news there, Jimmy? Big news is that they haven't found the leaker. The investigators have been, quote, unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. Now, there's a lot more we can say about it, but that is definitely the top line. The leaker remains unknown, and uh, the Supreme Court appears at least to be moving on, if not entirely. The investigation is still going ongoing. But this seems to at least um, close the initial chapter of the last eight months of the investigation, which has included 126 interviews with 97 employees. Definitely big news. Um, Any other details you can share about what the court said or any other findings? Yeah, it was a fairly comprehensive report about all the exhaustive investigative steps they took. Um, in addition to these 126 interviews with these employees, you know, the the uh, marshal of the court, Gail Curley, outlined the uh, forensic, physical, and digital analysis that they did on computers, phones, printers. There was even a fingerprint analysis of an unnamed item that was of interest to the investigation. I'm not sure exactly what that was. Um, The investigators concluded that it was unlikely that the leak was the result of an external hack on the court's IT systems. So it didn't completely rule out the possibility that this was an external breach. Um, It kind of laid the blame probably on the internal policies and procedures at the court as to why this took place, finding that you know, the, the pandemic and the, the attendant work from home policies, as well as security gaps and how sensitive information was handled, had, quote, created an environment where it was too easy to remove sensitive info from the building and the court's IT networks. Um, so this was a, a pretty, I wouldn't say complimentary report of how things had operated at the Supreme Court previously. When it comes to you know who has access to, let's say things like draft opinions, um, so it kind of concludes by laying out a number of recommendations for improving these internal practices, such as restricting the number of people that have access to sensitive information and bolstering training for court employees. So, does it surprise you to learn that at the time that this draft was initially circulated, uh, by the time that it had got to the leak, 82 employees, in addition to the justices, had had access to either electronic or hard copies of the draft opinion. So that number seems a little bit high, but it's not (laughs) completely like mind boggling to me because you have to count all the justices and all their clerks, right? Because the clerks help with the opinion writing. Sure, sure. Then I imagine there are some staff within each of the justices' offices, not to mention kind of like just external 
people of like dealing with the publication, the actual physical publication of opinions and, and whatnot. So yes, it seems high, but it doesn't seem mind boggling to me that it's like that number. No, that's that's probably right. And it what's kind of mind boggling to me though, whoever these um, people are that have access to documents is that this kind of thing doesn't happen more often with 80, well, I guess 90 if you include the justices themselves and however many you know dozens of opinions come out each year that this is so unprecedented the, the leak of this single um, file to Politico. In any event, investigators said they paid close attention to employees who displayed what they called, quote, insider threat behavior. So this would be people who kind of make a habit of violating confidentiality rules. Maybe they disclose certain things to their spouses or something to that effect. Maybe they have a disgruntled attitude, um, as well as those who may have had a, quote, or, quote, strategic reasons for the disclosure. Additionally, the investigators were looking at um, any employees who had connections with reporters, um, especially those with connections to Politico. So, I don't know if you remember this, but there were a couple of posts going around social media, kind of uh, LinkedIn investigators of people trawling people's online resumes and saying, oh, this person's married to that person and that person knows this person, so maybe it's them. Anyway, the the, the report kind of poured uh, cold water on a lot of that speculation by saying that they, quote, found nothing to substantiate any of the social media allegations regarding the disclosure. Now, when they were conducting interviews with these employees, um, the investigators made them sign affidavits attesting to the, to, the, to the statements that they did not disclose the Dobbs draft. And then they had to swear to the truth of the affidavits in the presence of a notary public. So this being the idea of attaching, like, you know, if you want someone to tell the truth, you have to give them a good reason to. And it basically attaches criminal liability in the event of giving false statements to these investigators. So the court basically says, you know, if investigators later determine any personnel lied to the investigators, those personnel would be subject to prosecution for a false statement in violation of the U.S. Code. So that tells you that these investigators, while they may have exhausted the bulk of their investigative work, if anything comes up, they're still going to be looking at it. So I don't know that you can say that this is a case-closed situation. It'll just be more of a cold case, I guess. Well, it'll be interesting to see if this means anything for the um, functioning of the court. Jimmy, I know you and I have kind of talked about the uh, perceived dysfunction um, or at least slowdown in um, the court's like usual operations. We're here in the middle of January. We still don't have any opinions, um, although we did have eight cases taken up um, recently. That's right. This should be probably the last batch of cert grants for this term. These are likely to be scheduled for the April argument session. Um, yeah, eight cases. A lot of definitely interesting questions in there, but we're we're not going to talk about all of them today. We're just going to focus in on two. So, so Natalie, can you start us off with the one that jumped out at you? Yeah, in the mix on Friday, the justices did take up a new religious rights case. Um, this is one where a Christian man is suing his former employer, the U.S. Postal Service, for disciplining him for not working on Sundays rather than accommodating his religious accommodation request. Now, I know some folks are be like, wait, 
does doesn't the postal service close on Sunday? <laughs> right. But um, actually, for several years now, I believe um, the USPS has had a deal where they deliver parcels for Amazon on Sunday. Um, so mm. they do work. So this case is coming out of the Third Circuit. Um, and it's a pretty big case, both, again, religious rights, but also like a big employment case. Um, it's basically urging the justices to revisit a 1977 precedent where they defined what's an undue hardship for an employer who's uh, being asked to accommodate someone for a religious accommodation, right? And basically under this 1977 president, anything that's like beyond a trivial burden is a un- can be called essentially an undue hardship. And basically the employer can say, look, it's too hard for me to accommodate this religious request. Obviously, the counsel for the ex-male workers saying that precedent is is way too easy for employers to say you can't meet my religious accommodation request. Um, so the court's going to take a look at this. Um, could again have pretty significant implications for the employment world. Um, I will say, last year the court rejected a similar challenge to this precedent, and in that rejection, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito penned a lengthy dissent saying that this 1977 precedent needs to be revisited. Um, So at least going into the arguments, there are at least two justices who seem to have a sympathetic ear for the, for the male poster worker. And to be clear, this involves title seven of the civil rights act, which applies, you know, although it is a government employer in this case, it would apply ostensibly to any employer bound by the civil rights act. Exactly. Very interesting. So, um, turning to another case from the Friday batch, it's called Counterman versus the people of the state of Colorado. Uh, it's the case of a man sentenced to four and a half years in prison for sending threatening Facebook messages to a female musician in the state of Colorado. So at the center of the case, the, the legal issue here is a question of First Amendment law that has divided the lower courts for the last 20 years. So there's been this long-standing exception of the First Amendment um, where true threats, what the Supreme Court has designated true threats, are not protected First Amendment speech. But there is a question about how to determine whether something is a true threat or not that can be prosecuted by, let's say, the government of Colorado. And that question is, do prosecutors need to show that a person knew or intended to convey this threat in order to convict someone of such a statute of making a, a true threat that's unprotected by the First Amendment? So this, it's a surprisingly straightforward question. And shockingly, there's like pretty widespread division among not just the circuit courts, uh, you know, at the federal level, but also differences between, let's say, uh, circuit Uh, federal courts and their state counterparts for how they've interpreted this true threat doctrine um, that has been handed down by the Supreme Court. So in some jurisdictions, courts require the government only to show that an objective, reasonable person would have found the speech to be threatening. And in others, um, the government has to show evidence about the mental state of the defendant to prove that they, in fact, knew what they were doing when they sent the threat. So this case comes from um, state court in Colorado, uh, which is one of those jurisdictions that abides by the objective reasonable person test. So 
the prosecutors in this state trial of the defendant here, Counterman, prosecutors were not required to actually delve into or demonstrate for the jury any evidence about the mental state of the defendant, about what he subjectively knew or intended to convey with his kind of very menacing Facebook messages, only what a objective, reasonable third person uh, would have found the messages to convey. So that is the dispute. And the court, as I said, is, is set to hear the case sometime in April, we, we suspect. The, I think it was in 2015 in an earlier case that presented a similar question, but uh, and that, that one involved a federal statute about making uh, threats in the course of interstate commerce. And uh, the court was basically asked to resolve this true threat split among the different circuits, but ultimately kind of decided a more narrow question and only resolved the issue under the federal statute, not actually delving into the larger constitutional framework, which would have set the rules for courts at both the state and the federal level. So this is a big open question of First Amendment law. And uh, I think it's really interesting. Agreed. I mean, it can have such an impact on the litigation that's surrounding, as you say, threatening messages that people send to each other on social media, via email, etc. Um, definitely, like you said, a big one to watch. Uh, but I think now we turn to arguments that happened this week, right, Jimmy? You, you uh, were covering one that also has uh, some potential big implications for immigrants. Yes, that's right. So this one was argued on Tuesday after the holiday. It's called Santos Zakaria, and it is the case of a gay transgender woman who is fighting removal to her native Guatemala, where she claims she will suffer further persecution for her gender identity and sexual orientation. So the issue here in what this could be, you know, a life or death case, as is, as is the case with so many immigration cases, it's a relatively dry procedural question that can make the difference between success and defeat for her bid to stay in the country. And it carries potentially sweeping implications for others in her situation. So, you know, when we talk about these procedural questions in immigration cases, it seems like, you know, how many people could this really apply to? Well, there's one, as of June, I believe, last year, there were 1.8 million cases pending in the immigration court. So suffice it to say, anytime the Supreme Court weighs in on clarifying the rules surrounding these immigration proceedings, it's a big deal for a lot of people. So what exactly is the question being asked in this case? So it involves the Immigration and Nationality Act. And there is a provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act that basically goes to administrative exhaustion. That is the idea that, you know, litigants challenging their uh, removal from the country have to exhaust their administrative remedies in the immigration courts before taking their claims to federal court. Um, now, the question of everyone agrees that the, that the, that the statute has this requirement. The question is about the requirement itself. Is it jurisdictional or is it a claims processing rule? That's a super wonky way of saying, is it basically mandatory in all cases that courts must reject cases where litigants have not exhausted their administrative remedies um, in the case of a jurisdictional rule? Or is it a claims processing rule that can be waived in cer certain circumstances? The court has heard a number of these cases in recent years 
about the difference between whether something is a jurisdictional rule or whether it's a claims processing rule that can be waived or told, um, as they say. And yeah, it's it's a it's one of those uh, cases of 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 litigation procedure that that can be fairly outcome determinative of whether uh, the the litigant or in this case the immigrant will have their claims heard by a federal court. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of Santos Sacaria and how her case was brought to the Supreme Court? So Santos Zacharia had applied for something called a withholding of removal. It's not quite asylum. It's a different process. But basically, she had argued that she was likely to face persecution um, in her native Guatemala if she was returned there by the government of the United States um, and presented evidence of you know, having uh, suffered previous sexual assaults for her gender identity and uh, sexual orientation. Uh, but the immigration judge ultimately c- concluded that she was she had not suffered past persecution and was not entitled to uh, what's called a presumption of f- future persecution. So if a courts you know decide that someone is likely to uh, suffer future persecution, then they will grant them withholding of removal. The immigration judge in this case said she was not um, likely to suffer that first future persecution, um, which tees up her appeal. Through the administrative process, we're still, you know, we're still not at the federal court level yet. We're still in the immigration court system. She brings her appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which disagrees with the IJ, the immigration judge, um, finds a presumption of future persecution, but then finds that that presumption is rebutted based on the evidence of the case. So she still loses on appeal um, based on the BIA's reading of the evidence in the case. So Santos Zecharia has now lost at the IJ level and at the BIA. So what she does now is she takes her case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal court. And the argument that she makes is that the BIA, in kind of rejiggering the IJ's conclusion about future prosecution and past prosecution, had engaged in impermissible fact-finding. She says that immigration law basically designates the BIA as uh, a tribunal that reviews legal issues, not factual questions, especially ones that are in dispute about things like the likelihood of future persecutions. That's her argument on the merits about why the BIA was wrong. But the Fifth Circuit, reading the administrative exhaustion provision of the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act, says, look, we have no jurisdiction to hear these these claims um, because... You have not exhausted your administrative remedies. Um, Specifically, the Fifth Circuit says, you did not file a motion for reconsideration before the Board of Immigration Appeals bringing these issues before them about impermissible fact-finding because we're not going to review these questions in the first instance before the BIA has the opportunity to correct its own error. Now we get to the Supreme Court in arguments that took place on Tuesday where Santos Zacharia basically says, no, the uh, administrative exhaustion provision of the INA is not jurisdictional. It's a claims processing rule. And two, even if it was jurisdictional, there's no component of it that says that we have to file a motion for uh, reconsideration. Uh, because that's a purely discretionary thing, and administrative exhaustion only goes to the things that the immigrant is entitled to, quote, as of right under the statute. And because it's completely discretionary, that's not something that we 
would be considered to be eligible for as of right. So those are basically the two primary arguments that she made on Tuesday through her uh, counsel to the Supreme Court. This is such a tricky web of administrative <laughs> red tape. Um, Are you I, still with me, though? That's I am. I am. It's very complicated, as with, I think, frankly, many immigration matters. Like, it's super complicated as to, you know, you have to really follow steps in a proper path to right. really get a good outcome, usually, in your case. Um, so she's at the Supreme Court. How did the arguments go i have to imagine they were they were filled with more red tape discussion it was definitely a red tape argument um luckily it did not go you know the three hours that we've seen in 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 recent cases but um it actually was a little bit more simple than i was anticipating only because the court seemed less interested in that second question about motions for reconsideration than it did in that kind of primary uh nuts and bolts question about administrative exhaustion is it jurisdictional or is it not? So the court, like I said, has been hearing a lot of these types of cases. So there's certain things that they've said about how to determine whether one is. Um, and particularly in the context of uh, administrative exhaustion requirements, uh, a number of justices, uh, uh, I believe all three of the Democratic appointees, Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor, were like, hey, in all of our recent cases on this, we've always held that these administrative exhaustion requirements are not jurisdictional. They are claims processing rules. Um, and additionally, you had uh, a little bit of sympathy, I would say, not not overly so, but, but definitely some sympathy expressed by Justices Barrett and Justice Gorsuch uh, about the, the petitioner's view on this matter, which is that basically... You know, if Congress is going to designate something as a jurisdictional rule in the INA or in any other statute, they have to sp speak clearly. They have to expressly designate it as jurisdictional. Um, otherwise, it's basically unfair to the litigants uh, who will not be on notice about the jurisdictional effects of it. Um, so, you know, that's one hand of it. You had probably some sympathy from Gorsuch, Barrett, and the three liberal justices. You also had a lot of pushback from, from, from Kavanaugh, from Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Samuel Alito, probably primarily. Uh, I'll just go with uh, <clears throat> Kavanaugh. He basically seemed to suggest, like, look, we have held that these administrative exhaustion requirements are non-jurisdictional in a number of recent cases, but, but those cases didn't have the same language of the statute that this one has, where it basically says courts may review these immigration cases, quote, only if, that's the language in the statute, only if these litigants have, you know, basically brought all, like, exhausted all their claims in the administrative process. So, it, I mean, it, like, all in all, this is going to be a case where the court is going to set a procedural rule for immigration cases and how to appeal them to the federal court system that could basically have pretty significant effects for you know the millions of immigrants whose whose claims are still like in the system right now, and one of the things that the Council for Santo Zacaria and some uh, amicus briefs that have been filed in the case are making is that you know this is a system oftentimes where people represent themselves pro se or um, maybe not have access to the most 
high-powered, deeply resourced council where every stone is going to be you know, turned before going to the federal court system when it comes to these motions for reconsideration and introducing another hurdle for immigrants before they can take their claims to the federal courts is not necessarily a wise uh, policy choice when you look at the, the current system as it stands. Something I don't think we've talked about and, and what I'm wondering is like, if the justices um, come out here against Santos Zacaria, can she go back and, you know, pursue that other path through the administrative way to exhaust her remedies? Well, the, uh, the motion for reconsideration has a 30-day um, deadline. It's not clear to me whether that will be told pending her appeal to the Fifth Circuit, but that's certainly uh, an open question that can be decided by, you know, future litigation. Certainly one, as you said, to keep an eye on for kind of the larger significance that this one particular case might have. Speaking of cases that could have um, some bigger, broader implications, there was other, another pretty big case argued um, at the Supreme Court this week that if you believe the petitioner could have a quote-unquote cataclysmic uh, uh, implications for sovereign relations in the world. Um, so the case is Turkey Hawk Bankasi versus U.S. The bank, also known as Hawk Bank, is a Turkish bank that is really primarily owned and guided by the government. And, and that is in key here. It is a what is known as a sovereign instrumentality. Um, and the DOJ is going after it for what they allege helping Iran evade sanctions um, by laundering money. So there's lots of criminal charges here, fraud, um, money laundering, and conspiring to obstruct the U.S. Treasury. So what's the question before the Supreme Court? So the question is, can the federal government press criminal charges against entities owned by foreign nations? I mean, obviously, you know, foreign nations have sovereign immunity, and we don't normally see them being hauled into court for this, that, or the other thing because there's a concern, obviously, that it could um, force some sour foreign relationships between the two governments and things can escalate and, and that's how you get war and whatnot. And so <laughs> most people have agreed, look, we don't just, you know, sue and prosecute sovereign nations for just about anything. And... In this case, um, Hawk Bank, who is represented by Lisa Blatt during oral arguments, um, is like, this is borderline cataclysmic if you allow this to happen. Um, it is going to be the first time in the history of the world that a foreign state is going to be indicted by, uh, for, by the U.S. for criminal prosecution. That's a, that's a bold claim. But it's a bold claim. It's a bold claim. <laughs> the government, meanwhile, says that, look, if you side with the bank you're going to insulate other countries from consequences if they commit crimes in the U.S., things like election interference or stealing nuclear secrets. Like, you cannot just, like, tie our hands and say that we can never prosecute a sovereign instrumentality or, some, you know, an entity that's basically an arm of another government. Well, so I get those policy arguments, why you would argue against it or why you would argue for it. But what are the actual legal questions? What are the arguments that the two sides, you know, the Hulk Bank on the one side and the federal government on the other side, are making about whether or not these foreign um, sovereign instrumentalities are, in fact, immune from criminal prosecution in the U.S.? 
So Hawkbank is saying, look, we have the same immunity that's often expended, extended to foreign countries in civil litigation through the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The government, though, is saying, and the government and a New York federal court agreed, is saying, look, the FSI does not shield Hawkbank from criminal charges, and that even if it did, the accusations of money laundering fall under this commercial activity exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And that is why we are now here <laughs> in the Supreme Court, because Hogbank does not want to let that, that uh, argument stand. So, yeah, the bank says, you know, courts don't have criminal jurisdiction over us through that, you know, general jurisdictional statute. And But even if they did, the FSIA takes it away um, because it provides that immunity for uh, criminal prosecution in the U.S. And I understand the the bank to be making the argument that like, no, that that exception for commercial activity, that only applies in like civil cases, not in criminal cases like this one. So what did the bench make of the different arguments that were being made? Because, you know, I mean, even if you put aside the apocalyptic rhetoric of uh, Hulk Bank in this case, I mean, I'm, it's still a pretty significant issue. And I'm sure the justices are pretty cautious about you know, deciding what sounds to be, you know, a, a case with potentially widespread implications for international relations. So my question is, you know, what do they make of the different arguments on each side? They did not seem to love the quote unquote jurisdictional arguments that Hawk Bank was making that U.S. district courts do not have jurisdiction over this case and that the Supreme Court should step in and say so. Um, you know, Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh came in and he said, very bluntly, it seems, quote unquote, pretty bizarre if the Supreme Court stepped into this case to stop the executive branch from prosecuting foreign nations, absent clear language in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act that this exception, right, for foreign sovereign nations extends to both criminal activities, which actually is not super clear in the text, right? and to a sovereign instrumentality um, who is conducting economic business. Um, those two points are, are kind of, you know, debatable here, um, that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act covers those. And so the justices were very skeptical of the jurisdictional arguments that Hawk Bank was making um, and seemed, you know, to lean a little bit towards sympathizing with you know, the government here that, hey, like they're saying they've looked at this issue. They they did not take this case lightly, right? They've, you know, and, and the executive branch has decided to go forward, at, you know, even understanding the foreign relations issues with prosecuting this bank. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the whole point, right, is that the executive branch made this very calculated decision to prosecute this state instrumentality um, Hulk Bank. And, you know, Kavanaugh is basically saying, is it the Supreme Court's job to tell the executive branch that they are not to do that if there's no kind of clear language in the, you know, in the in the U.S. code or the Constitution or otherwise telling it? It's, it's a pretty fascinating point. Now, I'm wondering if other justices shared those same concerns or? Yes, I think it was fair to say that, frankly, most of the justices on the bench Justice Sotomayor, Justice Barrett, Justice um, Jackson, Justice Kavanaugh expressed concerns with going this route. 
um, which is really the route that, like, you know, is uh, high up in the arguments being made by the Hawk Bank. But I will step in to say um, that, you know, Lisa Blatt, in, in laying out her argument, said, like, look, these are our top arguments of jurisdictional issues, right? Why you should not take up this case. But if you disagree with us on these two points here, right, then there is, then we would argue there's a common law immunity that we've mm-hmm. not seen, you know, ever a sovereign nation prosecute a sovereign nation in this way. Mm-hmm. And that there's this understanding that sovereign nations, including their instrumentalities, have an immunity from prosecution in cases like this. And that argument actually seems to get a little bit more um, attention from the justices, which Lisa Blatt, I, I will say, did not seem to to be all caring for. Like, she was like, well, I guess if you don't accept my other two arguments that I think are better, then yes, we can talk about common law immunity. Um, so this is, um, I think, where the case might end up revolving a little bit more um, and kind of looking forward, this I think could, I, I, and I, I hate to crystal ball, right? Cause I do not know what the justices are going to do, but it did seem like, you know, at least one option here with this, th- this could be kind of like a non-decision decision where they remand the case back down to the second circuit and ask um, the second circuit to look at this common law immunity argument mm. a little bit closer because it wasn't really kind of poked and prodded very much in the original second circuit arguments. Um, so Sonia Sotomayor noted that, um, and Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch also seemed inclined to possibly remand back down um, for similar reasons. Very interesting. Um, yeah, the common law does sound like kind of a a pretty good. Uh, you know, backup, backstop argument if you can point to however many thousands of years of history and say that this is the first time that this has ever happened. Of course, you know, that Carl, also Sag- Carl Sagan did say, you know, uh, what is it? Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So maybe it's just that the executive branches of previous administrations have just chosen not to do this and are choosing to do it now. In any event, um, very interesting case, Natalie. Uh, That'll be also one, if it ever comes out, that I'll be curious to see just the breakdown on. Um, You know, someone who was always interesting to watch in a lot of these international law cases was uh, Justice Breyer, just because he was like a student of international law, having written several books and and studied it for, for, for a long time. So, Yes, curious to see how this one comes out. I think that just about does it for this week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jimmy. And thanks to our listeners. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our reporters, Vin Guerreri and Britton Keegan. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all that high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks so much.